0: Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. Becoming a monthly sustainer for a mere $5 or $10 helps me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else. You can help support the podcast by going to seansrussiablog.org. This episode is an SRB podcast extra. I was recently invited by Matt Rojansky from the Kennan Institute to give a talk based on a recent article I wrote for the website In Russia on the history of Russophobia in the United States. I gave the talk on April 11th, 2017. The Kennen were kind enough to give me permission to repurpose the talk for listeners. In the talk, I referred to many images. If you want to view the accompanying presentation for this talk, please go to this episode on the SRB website. I just want to make one correction. In the talk, I misspoke when I say that Thomas Jefferson had a correspondence with Nicholas I. I should have said that correspondence was with Alexander I. Here's Russophobia in America a genealogy. In a recent article in Tablet Magazine tellingly titled Anti-Russia, the political writer Paul Berman painted the history of U.S.-Russia relations as an eternal philosophical conflict that has pitted the two countries against each other throughout the centuries, where the fate of the world was at stake. He called it a struggle of democracy versus Tsarism. The rendering of U.S.-Russia relations as a timeless existential clash of civilizations is not only historically inaccurate, it's damaging. But it's this kind of binarism where the self and other stand at the end of two irreconcilable poles where the continued existence of the one requires the erasure of the other is at the heart of my definition of Russophobia. In this talk today, I want to give a brief historical genealogy of Russophobia in the United States to get a sense of its presence and function in American political discourse. The current wave of Russophobia is mostly a product of a a profound shift in American discourse about Russia in the 20th century. In fact, to reduce Russia's place in the American imagination to the absence or presence of Russophobia is itself an act of injurious reductionism. Historically, Russia has had a much more ambiguous and contradictory place in the American mind. It's a history where Americans have related to Russia with indifference and amicability, as an object of fascination and mystery, and even as an analogous and kindred nation. At the same time, Russia has served as a symbol of ignobility, a prototype of despotism, a barometer of backwardness and even evil itself. Where Russia has stood on this spectrum has less to do with Russia as it has the United States. For Russia, as David Foglitzong has argued, served as a dark double or imaginary twin. In American eyes, Russia has appeared as a distortion of the American self, reflected through a carnival mirror. It's a distorted, disfigured, enchotate, even horrifying image but still an enigmatic source of American self-justiposition and psychological displacement. So what is russophobia? It's hard to trace when the term russophobia emerged in the English language. The earliest I could find is in a dictionary from 1911, pictured here. It simply states that a russophobe is one who has strong feelings against Russia and Russia and the Russians. This is too broad, since having strong feelings against something doesn't qualify as a phobia. Russophobia, as an object of analysis, has a rather sparse literature. Recent definitions add cultural and discourse analysis, concepts of Orientalism, and social psychology. In 2000, Anatole Levin defined it as "...selected or invented historical facts about the enemy nation, its culture, and its racial nature." are taken out of context and slotted into prearranged intellectual structures to arrange the unchanging wickedness of the other side. More recently, Andrei Tsigankov called it a fear of Russia's political system that is viewed as incompatible with the interests and values of the West in general and the United States in particular. While I don't disagree with Lieven's and Tsigankov's definitions, I think we can't ignore the psychological aspect of phobia. According to one medical definition, a phobia is a form of anxiety that may result from displacing an internal conflict to an external object symbolically related to the conflict. The image of Russia in the American imagination over the last 150 years has oscillated between Russia as an object of American narcissistic desire and a subject of American neurosis. In periods of the former, Russia serves as the hopeful reassertion of the universality of American values. In times of the latter, Russia functions as a vessel to American fears, vulnerabilities, imperfections, and anxieties. Russophobia emerged quite late in the United States compared to other European powers. The so-called Testament of Peter the Great A spurious text that gave a blueprint for Russian geopolitical domination undergirded Russophobia in France and Britain throughout the 19th century. It called for Russia to be constantly on war footing, offered advice on interfering and dominating its European neighbors, and extending its borders west. Once Russia vanquished its enemies, Sweden, Poland, Persia, and Turkey, the testament called for extending a hand to France and Austria To share with them the domination of the world. Now, this text is a total forgery, by the way. The testament's contents were so potent, Napoleon ordered the French press to pen articles showing that Europe is in the process of becoming booty for Russia. The testament enjoyed repeated resurrection in every European war with Russia until World War I. The testament eventually found its way to the United States. However, Though the American magazine Niles National Register published it in 1843, the forgery's claims of Russia's imperialist impulses fell flat. The register even stressed that Russian-American relations have been and will long necessarily be of the most amicable nature. Nor was there an American version of Britain's preeminent Russophobe David Urquhart, Urquhart waged a public campaign claiming that Lord Henry Palmerson, the British Prime Minister, was an agent of Tsar Nicholas I. One contemporary wrote that Urquhart was so successful in his design to diffuse a feeling of terror and the spirit of hatred towards Russia in the public mind. Indeed, the trope of Russia as a giant octopus threatening to ensnare Europe had little currency in the United States until the Cold War. And you can see here. Britain in the 1870s, 1900, it's only in the 1950s do you get this use of the octopus image, and then you can see its reproduction most currently. Though direct American contacts with Russia were few in the 18th and 19th century, early 19th century, they nevertheless included some prominent figures in American historical folklore. William Penn, the founder of Pennsylvania Colony, had an audience with Peter I in 1698 during the latter's European tour. Some key figures in the American Republic had friendly, even intimate relations with Russia. John Quincy Adams served as secretary, a secretary in St. Petersburg when he was 14 and became America's first minister to Rus- the Russian Empire in 1809. Thomas Jefferson had an active correspondence with Nicholas I and even sent Tsar drafts of the American Const- Constitution to inspire reform. But much of the early discourse on Russia, though replete with denunciations of Russian despotism, viewed it as a fascinating yet far-off land of little consequence to America. Indifference, however, did not wholly mean disinterest. Though Russia wouldn't emerge as a dark double until the late 19th century, it nevertheless was imagined as a kind of long-lost twin. Russia's similitude to the United States captured some Americans' imagination. Its vast step, its multilingual and multicultural landscape, its continental manifest destiny to settle right up to the sea, the experience of serfdom, its identity as a unique civilization, and a sense of historical mission all found parallels in America. These imaginings also res- resulted in concrete relations. Russia was the only great power to support the North during the American Civil War, an act born of mutual a mutual history in human bondage, And it's abolition. Russia in 1861, the United States in 1865. Members of the Russian Navy docked in New York Harbor, even paraded down Broadway in New York City in 1863. So here's a picture from Harper's Weekly from 1863 of members of the Russian Navy parading in Broadway, on Broadway in New York City. Here's a pic cartoon from Harper's at the time. Here you have the American eagle, Russian bear walking together with representations of France as the, the rooster and England as the, the a lion. And this picture came with a, next to an article that said, we devote considerable space this week to illustrations of the grand reception given last week to our distinguished Russian visitors. The ceremony was intended to have and had a political significance. No notice whatever was taken of the fleets of British and French admirals lying in the bay, but every citizen felt bound to do what in him lay to testify to the Russian sense of gratitude for the friendly manner in which Russia has stood by us in our present struggle, while the Western powers have done not a little to work our ruin. And here... In 1871 and 1872, Grand Duke Alexei, the son of Alexander II, went on a six-week tour to the United States. Here's a cartoon that says, Columbia saying, my long-lost Alexis, I'm so glad you've come. And here in the background, cheering Americans to his visit. And here, a picture of Grand Duke Alexei with general, with custard. In 1872, he Custard, uh, Grand Duke Alexei Custard and Wild Bill Cody went on a famous buffalo hunt. And um, in this story that uh, Wild Bill Cody relates, Alexis couldn't take down a bull until Cody guided him and showed him how to ride next to the bull and shoot. And Cody was like ready to go home after they finally, Alexis finally shot one bull. Um, except Alexis dismounted his horse, sat on the bull, cut off its tail and gave an Indian war hoop. And ordered his aides to break out champagne. Cody then reconsidered. He recalled, "I was in hopes that he would kill four or six more buffaloes before we reached camp, especially if a basket of champagne was to be opened every time he dropped one." And here is a depiction of Alexander II Second in his war against Turkey as a crusader, Christian crusader, also from Harper's Weekly. And here is after Alexander II's assassination, where liberty here is dropping a cap says Russia liberty on its, on the face it says assassination advances no cause. And below there are, you know, recognitions of Alexander as the liberator of serfs, the liberator of Bulgaria, and other also representing liberty and hope. And this contrasts to the picture of the neoli, nihil- of the revolutionaries, the nihilists representing chaos and anarchy. Here also, though, it was these shared qualities and experiences that inspired Walt Whitman in a letter to his Russian translator of Leaves of Grass in 1881 to write that while both nations were so distant, so unlike at first glance, nevertheless so resembled each other. In their historic and divine mission, America and Russia were not quite the same, but almost. This discourse of brotherhood began to change even before Alexander's assassination and became dominant in the 1880s as American visions of Russia took on a more narcissistic edge. Russian autocracy and the belief that the Russian people were slavish rose to prominence with the counter-reforms under Alexander III, anti-Semitic pogroms, and the repression against Russia's (coughs) revolutionary movement, which some Americans had a sudden sympathy for, proved that Russia and the U.S. diverged on different historical paths. Many American Russophiles became Russophobes, as the American discourse on Russia shifted from a recognition of parallelism to a demand for mimicry. Tolerance for Russia's own path waned as people like George Kennan, the first George Kennan, and the American socialist William Walling increasingly advocated for America to free Russia, or in the words of the latter, to become a United States of Russia. Here, American imaginings of Russia aligned with its Western European primogenitors that cast Russia as a malignancy on civilization, but with an added American twist. Russia's more civilized elements Simultaneously represented the universal desire and righteousness of American democracy. George Kennan communicated this latter notion in his lecture tours for his book, Siberia and the Exile System. Kennan, who served as both, both the unrivaled American authority on Russia and free Russia activist, would often dazzle audiences with a story about how in 1876, the centennial of the American, in, of American independence, 300 imprisoned Russian revolutionaries in St. Petersburg covertly sewed small American flags and displayed them on their bars on the 4th of July to prove fidelity to freedom. Kennan's tale enchanted audiences and was repeatedly recycled in the American media. So here you have an image of now, you know, brute force. It says the Russian Cossack carrying off the bride of civilization, Liberty. Another one, it says, not a beauty spot. Civilization, what a dreadful spot. I can't make any impression on it. And the world says, oh, that's Russia. And here too, during the famine of 1891 and 92, there's images of portraying Russia as not caring about the famine. And this says, Russia's nuclear family. It's perhaps... No accident that stories that extolled the universal desire of American democracy occurred when the United States launched its own imperial project abroad and even butted heads with Russia and East Asia. Also, it was a time of racial violence and un- labor unrest escalated at home. In a century or so, Russia had moved from a subject in Americans' Lacanian mirror stage to an object of narcissistic displacement. Now, Russians' desire to be like us shined up a tarnished American democracy. Such idealism sublimated American reality as it would again and again into the 20th and 21st centuries. A rundown of Russophobia after 1917 requires little explication, and I won't delve into it too deeply except to make a couple of observations. Russia quickly, of course, became equated with Soviet communism, So much so that we frequently hear the Soviet Union used for Russia by politicians and pundits 25 years after the USSR dissolved. The spread of communism pushed the American campaign to free Russia to the center of American policy. The Soviet Union was quickly framed as an even more, even more a cancer on civilization than Russian autocracy. So here is also in the late 19th century, you get the, the the image of Russia, Russians as slavish people that could only be governed by the strong hand of an autocrat, as another trope that exists throughout that come, rises to the really to the surface. But here you get images after the revolution of 1917. Here is a representation of a Bolshevik, right? And and notice the class representation here, I think it's really important opening on on the threshold of civilization and here too represented the same type of class image of the peasant uh, you know bolshevism and it says what's the difference but you also get images like this it says rise up russia where in a kind of garden of eden the American soldier, a Japanese soldier, and a Czech-Slovak soldier, this is during the Russian Civil War, is trying to help Russian man off his knees to grab his gun and to, and to march into civilization. And here, notice, Trotsky and Lenin are kind of playing as serpents of Eden. And here, Lenin is wearing a German helmet, suggesting that, of course, he's a German spy. Perhaps for the first time, Russophobia developed in the American mass consciousness in a real clinical sense, it wasn't just that Russia slash Soviet Union was something to fear. It was also given infectious powers that in the memorable line by, doc- by Dr. Strangelove's General Jack D. Ripper sought to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. The red scares of the 1920s and the late 1940s and 1950s would tattoo the Russian threat onto the American psyche. Russia became like an airborne pathogen, difficult to isolate and contain and highly infectious. The containment policy itself positioned quarantining the Russian communist disease as its central purpose. American anti-communism had a more spectral effect. It conjured Russia and Russians as creatures of the shadows, walking among us, and serotypically seeking to corrupt Are mores and values. Here, Russophobia would intersect with a whole litany of moral panics of the Cold War. Many of these elements continue today, as such terms like useful idiot, Kremlin agent, hybrid war, active measures, reflexive control, maskarovka, kompromat, all terms of deception, are used to describe Russia's goals to corrupt, undermine, infect, delegitimize, and subvert America, its institutions, and values. Russia's primary method of subversion is phantasmagoria. Today's Russophobia is rooted in the idea of Russia as phantom. Current commentary on Russia is imbued with a Russia scheming in the shadows. Reporting and commentary on Russia is filled with Russian phantasmagoria. Readers are treated to terms like shadows, creeping narratives, disinformation, a boogeyman, murkier, a kabuki theater that facilitate Russian infection, compromise, corrosion, erosion, corruption, and subversion of America's precious bodily fluids. Russia again represents a kind of infection. In the media, more broadly, we are treated to endless lists of Russians connected to Putin, Kremlin connected, a close Putin confidant, or they are simply spies. And meeting with Russian officials is suspicious and dangerous. lacks kiss is a mark of political death. And once again, we are treated to a well-known Russophobic narrative. Here, I love, this is my favorite te- uh, headline of recently from the Palm Beach Newspaper, yachts of Trump, financial backer, (laughs) Russian oligarchs seen close together. Ooh. (laughs) And once again, we are treated to, and here we have another one, this Russian diplomat has become poison for the Trump administration. And once again, we are treated to a well-worn Russophobic narrative that we are in a clash of civilizations where Russia is trying to sow doubt, undermine, and subvert liberal democracy and the American-led global order. We are currently witnessing a period where American internal conflict is deterritorialized from the self and stitched onto the Russian other. The current crisis in American politics, whether it be the ignobility of Trump, the disillusion of American democratic institutions, the disembowelment of, media, of the media's truth claim, or the widening gap between representative and people, has found a more familiar culprit in the Russian phantasm. It is, after all, more comforting to combat the other than it is to face the self. That was Russophobia in America, a genealogy, presented at the Kennan Institute on April eleventh, 2017. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at shansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from shansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.
1: I'd like to feed the children, find a cure for disease, rebuild cities, and plant a lot of trees. I'd like to help the sick, build factories, give money to students, hospitals and galleries, but I'm afraid of the Russians. We can't sleep at night, so afraid of the Russians, afraid we've got to fight. I'd like to go to space, clean up rivers and lakes, put everyone to work, whatever it takes. But I'm afraid of the Russians. I can't sleep at night. So afraid of the Russians. Afraid we've got to fight. They've got ships at sea. They've got missiles in the air. Tanks on the border of Europe. And spies everywhere. I'd like to feed the children, find a cure for disease, rebuild the cities, plant a lot of trees, but I'm afraid of the Russians, I can't sleep at night, so afraid of the Russians, they've got to fight, they've got ships at sea, they've got missiles in the air, tanks on the border of Europe, and spies everywhere.